It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. This is our weekly uh, opportunity to sit down with journalists from all over the East End to talk about what's in the headlines this week. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm your co-host along with Bill Sutton. We are with the Express News Group. Uh, we published the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Southampton, uh, I said that, the, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website 27east.com. I lose track sometimes. Uh, well, there's so my many. My co-host is Bill Sutton, <laughs> our managing editor. Hey, Bill, how are you? Good. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here. And our panelists today, uh, Denise Civiletti, uh, who is the editor of Riverhead Local. Hey, Denise. <laughs> hey, Joe, how are you? <laughs> We're off the media empire of one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you lose track of all of those. Uh, Beth Young, editor of the East End Beacon. Hey, Beth. Good morning. And Christine Sampson, who is the deputy managing editor of the East Hampton Star. Hey, Chrissy. Good morning. Hi. Good, good to have you here. Thanks for joining us. So I wanted to, to start off with a conversation about uh, Sag Harbor Village and the um, traditionally black neighborhoods that are often referred to as the Sands neighborhoods because of their names. And again, help me out. It's Sag Harbor Hills, uh, Azure Rest, and Nineveh, correct? Yep. Did I, correct. Did I get them all right? Okay. And uh, the question is, this is, I'm always fascinated by this story because these have traditionally been black neighborhoods, black owned properties, and um the neighborhoods are changing and it, they're changing in part because of the larger demand for property everywhere. And um, the idea is to try and keep them in some way uh, special. And, um, you know, there, there's been a, a proposal now, Chrissy, uh, the, the, the conversation that they're having is about whether or not there should be a, an overlay district used or whether they should create a historic district. And I know that one of the questions about that is that it can affect what the people who already live there can do with their properties and, and what their property values uh, can be affected. Can you can you sort of walk us through a, a little bit about what the issue is here? Sure. So um, Sag Harbor has you know a tiny village and a lot of it is covered by a historic district, right? Which is a local uh, government's ability to, um, based on historic surveys and architectural um, standards and such, they can put restrictions on, you know, what you can and can't do with a house, right? So in a historic district, but then an overlay district doesn't quite take those restrictions as far. It will, it would acknowledge, you know, some protections need to be put in place, some some limitations, but would allow a lot more flexibility. And the issue is that, you know, as you alluded to, these um, these communities, which, you know, go back to the 1950s and 60s when black people had to often self-fund their own property purchases because of racist lending practices and covenants and things like that, um, they sort of um, collected around these beachfront communities here in Sag Harbor. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, over the years, you, you've seen so many of these interesting houses torn down. They're not, um, they may not be as old as the, you know, like the Union Street houses or some of the ones um, like off of Main Street in the village, right? And, and tucked into those other side streets, but they still have architectural significance, especially in Azurest where, you know, a prominent black female architect was a catalyst in the you know the establishing of the neighborhood and a lot of those houses are being lost to development 
um, you know, like you said, it, yeah. So, I, should, I should stress that this, that this is not about necessarily the, the, the racial makeup of people who right. own houses. It's right. about the, the way the neighborhood itself is being changed and, and transformed. Right. And so they've, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, people want to say like, I want protections, but not, I still want to be able to like, you know, renovate my house in a certain way because currently in the historic district, you have to go through the board of historic preservation and architectural review for most of most changes you want to make aesthetically to your house. Right. You can't just, you know, build another story or another room. It has to respect architectural standards and significance. Right. So that's an historic district. And the way you go about that is you have a formal survey commissioned. Right. Mm-hmm. And so in Sands, they're not talking. So like the majority of the residents, you know, according to the discourse this week at the Sag Harbor Village Board meeting, um, they don't favor a historic district. They favor the zoning overlay district, which would do things like cap a house size. Um, uh, what else? What else? Would there require be? setbacks and things require like that. Setbacks, right? No more than two accessory structures on a lot, like regardless of lot size. Um, and, you know, a lot of these lots in Sag Harbor are rather, are rather small. Um, but, you know, in, in, year, in years past, you know, and I was with the Sag Harbor Express for a few years myself covering exactly this issue is that, you know, you could, you know, a family, a family has this house generationally, you know, maybe the, the, the owners pass away and the family puts it up for sale. Maybe they're not local anymore. They put the house up for sale developer buys it, knocks down, you know, a house that was built in the 1950s and 60s um, is part of this, like, you know, this resort community where everybody knew each other. It was so friendly and they didn't have to lock their front doors because there was such a communal neighborhood uh, camaraderie. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and That's, I, I, I kind of wanted to bring Beth in, too, because, Beth, I yeah. know you've you've covered Sag Harbor for years. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about the nature of the Sands neighborhoods and and the 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 real appreciation that Sag Harbor has for for those neighborhoods and wanting to protect them. Yeah, I mean it's a it's an issue throughout. So, uh, I, I lived very close to um, Sag Harbor Hills when I lived there, and um, it was a very much a friendly, welcoming neighborhood. And um, I haven't been back to the old neighborhood in. 10 years or so. I mean, Sag Harbor has changed so much and Mm -hmm. keeping it from changing is very difficult at this point um, throughout the village. Um, But these particular neighborhoods, I mean, the the people who settled here, um, who who came here, you know, they were, they were really, um, uh, it was a hotbed of thinkers and people who really like did amazing things outside of Sag Harbor uh, throughout the Harlem Renaissance and all of this, um, and and brought that out here to this vacation community and um, and that's that's a rare treasure. It really you is. know what, what I find amazing about it is it's that ability to take something sort of negative and it was you know these were neighborhoods that were sort of um, at the time it seems like it was you can you can have these neighborhoods yeah. and. And and the black community embraced that and and really, really has made those communities something really special. Um, and I, I remember a few years back, it's it it's it's probably been 
Oh, it's been more than five years, but I remember Tom Clavin, actually, who was a columnist um, for us, uh, still is, uh, but at the time, and, and he had sort of raised the alarm and said, we're starting to see real development pressures coming to those neighborhoods and changing them in ways that we've never seen before. Um, but but I think that's just endemic of the entire, I think, uh, I, Chrissy, I think you mentioned that, that that it's happening all over Sag Harbor. It's happening all over the entire region. Yeah. And interestingly, you know, the prior week we reported that the, you know, the folks in the Sands communities, they've already achieved listing on the New York State and National Registers of Historic Places, right? Right. right. And they came to the East Hampton Town Board the prior week to discuss a town level designation. Um, and so there's kind of this concurrent, you know, discussion. Some of the folks who are involved in that process, the, the national and state registers of historic places, they're advocating for, you know, SANS to have the historic district status, not just the overlay for the zoning, right? Because they want more restrictions, but those aren't the folks necessarily living yeah. So, so, those houses, so, you know? so I, I think some of the objections to the historic district come come down to simple property values that that if you restrict people from tearing down the houses to do a rebuild or whatever you're you're limiting the the underlying property value by by doing that which i think is an is an interesting argument you certainly you know want property owners to have the full value of of their property but i i think that so the overlay would be a way to kind of like a middle ground where where these property values are are protected, um, but but at the at the same time there are some restrictions, so you don't end up with you know with these you know with huge McMansions that are out of character with with those neighborhoods. Right. Um, yeah. The the other thing too is you know let's I I, I think it, it's wonderful to have these historic communities, but you know people people may be moving and wanting to sell those properties because let's not forget it's a it's hopefully a, a a different age now where people can live wherever they want to live and they're not restricted to certain neighborhoods and you certainly want to protect that history because i think that history is 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 important but it, it's it's not um it, it's not an effort to preserve to preserve those neighborhoods for for black people that can't live anywhere else anymore and and and, I'm, and i think that's that's an interesting part of of the argument too is is you know i, I think just by 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 natural pro progression you know those neighborhoods are just going to um are, are just going to feel a little a little different but but again you you, you want to preserve the historic element there that that this is what happened there, the Renaissance that that Beth talked about, that these people came in and created these. Well, these. Well, I mean, I think part of the issue is like that, that the, well, what's historic there is the people who were there and what yeah. what they what they did. And it's not necessarily the architecture. Right. And that's a hard thing to get your head around, especially in a, in a village that really they have an, a, a very active architectural review board that is very good at talking about whaling captain's houses and whatnot. Um, but the, uh, the, 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 um, the architecture that you see in, in the Sands neighborhoods is much more subtle. It's much more recent. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
and you know, I mean, the architecture of the fifties is very much, um, you know, providing houses for everybody, and mm -hmm. they don't necessarily meet with, um, they don't necessarily meet the needs of what people expect in a house today. Right. Uh, even the people who may have historically lived there might they might want to have That's... more guest rooms, more more houses for more more places for their their relatives to stay when they come and visit. So That's, I don't know the, that preserving architecture is necessarily preserving the community. The 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 conflict here, Chrissy, is fascinating wow. to me because yeah. because I think am, am I correct that I, I believe I've I've heard that you know over the years a lot of it uh, with the neighborhoods there they were preserved because the owners were they would sort of self manage that 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 they would only sell. Um, you know, to people that that they felt would really fit into the community. It wasn't necessarily um, a, a, about the race of the buyer, but it was just about the nature of the person who was going to move in. That it would be somebody that would appreciate the house that was there and and wasn't going to tear it down. But we're in a new time where the value of those properties has skyrocketed, yeah. and you don't want to punish people who who now have those properties. And especially when we're talking about black wealth, this is important that you don't want to take that away um, from, from people, but it's just that that conflict is fascinating to me. And, and um, this is one of the areas where it really matters a lot. And where the rubber meets the road is really at the village level. Yeah. Because yeah. that's the, those are the boards that we're really going to have the regulatory authority to do anything. Yeah, I don't, I don't envy Sag Harbor village for having to come up with the answer to this because I, I don't think there's a simple solution to it. Uh, and it's an important move for sure, no question. Okay, so I want to bring in um, Denise because we've you've been far too quiet so far. So let's talk about say something. The, the story that jumped off off your website to me was uh, this proposal, which apparently is on hold now, sadly. Uh, well, at least you know to me it's sadly. I think it's a cool thing that they wanted to put a, an, an NHL size. Uh, ice rink at Stotsky Park, right in Riverhead. Um, they they did. So there um, there is um, the Pekanakaki Foundation, which is actually based in Wading River. It was founded by a Wading River resident and um, a real hockey fan, um, who um, they they've been working out of. Um, they have a couple of travel teams and they provide educational programs about hockey and skill training sessions and things like that. People who are interested and um, they've been uh, using a couple of rinks, uh, one in Southampton village and the Bucks Guild rink in mm -hmm. East Hampton, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and um, those are seasonal outdoor rinks only in winter. And uh, the other times they travel to um up, way up the island, Dix Hills, Kings Park, Hop Hog, et cetera. Now, anyone who uh, loves ice hockey and loves to play ice hockey will tell you that, you know, what they have to go through for a team that they play with or play on uh, to get ice time at one of these places is really rough. I mean, you hear reports of people having to get there for 6 a.m. sessions or 11 p.m. sessions. And so these folks are really, really dedicated to the game <laughs> to, to do that. And um, one of these folks happens to be uh, Councilman Ken Rothwell, who has played ice hockey and continues to his entire life. So he's really um, a, a bit a proponent of this. And for a couple of years now, the town of Riverhead has been speaking with um, 
the Pecanacaki Foundation uh, about siting an NHL size rake complex at the uh, Calverton Enterprise Park, where the town has a 90 acre uh, parkland called Veterans should, Memorial Park. We should say NHL sized ice surface. It, it, we're not talking right. about a, a, uh, a NHL sized yeah, arena. Thank you. Clear. Yeah. I, the, the, no, the, correct. Big yes. ice surface. No. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it would be an arena, but kind of a you know a moderately sized arena. I think the one that they are that they've actually already purchased, I think, can seat a thousand people. Uh, yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so um, they've been talking about putting this up at the Veterans Memorial Park in Calverton at the former Grumman site where, again, the town created this 90-acre municipal park. They carved it out of the land that was deeded to the town by the Navy. And um, it is uh, right now that's uh, improved with uh, some baseball fields. The uh, Hamptons Collegiate Baseball League plays there. When the, playing the Riverhead Tomcats, I guess, and um, and there's a there's a, a walking and uh, biking trail that circumvents the park. It's but it's mostly I, I, undeveloped. I I drive by it every day, and there's always people at at, at Stotsky yeah. Park. I mean, it's just really busy, yeah. really well used. Stotsky Park is really well. So Stotsky Park is considered the town's flagship park. I think it's right. its oldest park, and it's it's got the most amenities and fields and things like that. It's the home of the, the little league, and there's tennis courts and pickleball courts and a skate rink and um, a, a very nice soccer field, and then what they call the all-purpose field that uh, there have been plans in the, uh, the capital improvement program for the recreation department to make it like a turf field that could be mm. used for lacrosse as well as soccer and other things. So it's that field, this all-purpose field, that um, the uh, town now wanted to, or some some officials in town wanted to place uh, build this um, domed uh, rink, this domed but, ice rink. But so it's, it's, it's not... It, at the moment, it's it's an idea that's been shelved, right? Well, at the moment, yeah, it was shelved in the sense that they're going to, you know, investigate it further. I mean, I, you know, I don't think anybody really disagrees that Calverton would be a better place for this because it could be there's plenty of room for growth, parking. They could put a second, you know, ice rink there. Um, you know, it's definitely the better place for this, but it it's a quagmire of difficulties over there. I mean, you know, um, the town took a very long time to get those baseball fields open because the Suffolk County Health Department wanted bathrooms that would uh, hook up to the Calverton sewer plant, which was cost prohibitive. There's no so there's no sewer plant that it could effectively hook hook this facility up. It'd be the same situation for this facility as it was for the big. Eventually, they gave up. They gave in, and they allowed the town to use porta potties until the sewer became available in a way that wasn't cost prohibitive. Um, but that's still not the case. There's no water supply there, and anybody who follows any of this knows that water supply at Epcal is a really uh, big political hot potato because of the uh, Beth is smiling because she she knows all about this. You know, uh, there's a whole dispute about whether the town with the DEC, whether the town water district has the capacity to serve the Epcal site. So there's like a big fight about that that's been ongoing, having to do with the other development there, obviously. But this would be caught up in that. So 
you know, they're looking at all these issues and they're saying, you know, between the infrastructure costs and the problems with the water, you know, this is going to take forever to get done at EPCAP. Let's put it at Stotsky on this field. <laughs> and, um, you know, some people thought that was a great and exciting idea. It could happen very quickly. The Peconic Hockey Foundation was hoping to get that done by this and open up by like November. Mm. <laughs> um, they already bought this dome. They call it the bubble rink from <laughs> the city of Cranston, Rhode Island. Uh, got delivered to Riverhead. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. They've, uh, they've already got the equipment. So, but they didn't have the towns. They had not really finalized an agreement or anything like that with the town. And um, they're not everybody. I mean, the town board is not of one uh, mind on this. And uh, it actually, the issue opened up a, a pretty wide chasm that became sort of public between um, the supervisor and her running mate in the last election, the newest councilman, Councilman Rothwell. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that the Hockey Foundation is seeking is for the town to assume responsibility for 20 percent of the operating costs of this facility. Mm -hmm. And um, that would be to, you know, help underwrite uh, uh, the electric uh, costs. Sure. Which, which would probably um, be pretty high if you're keeping that ice cold all year, all year long. Well, yeah, and, there, the there, and they are uh, estimating it would be uh about three hundred thousand dollars yikes so and yeah so this house supervisor says well we don't have that kind of money to, to underwrite this you know and so she's uh, you know objecting to it on that basis alone and so there's not you know the board is not of one mind and the recreation advisory committee weighed in this week uh saying that they um they they voted that they voted that this decision or the this proposal should be tabled for the time being until the, the various issues are investigated or or as you or as you note in your headline put on ice put on ice. Oh. that was alec I, that was alec that was good alec, alec Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> but you know yeah I, that's what i said um but so like you know what he, I mean, headline writing oh my god <laughs> but um it, but anyway the um uh, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, there's another major legal issue, which is the alienation of parkland thing that like, you know, wow. it's a, and there are, big, there are big issues with that in terms of like, you know, can you can you like sign an agreement to have exclusive exclusive operation of a facility in a public park? There's, you know, if the park accepted any state or federal funding, there's like a lot of hoops to jump through, some of which even potentially involve uh uh, passage of a, a bill in this by the state legislature yeah <laughs> and a referendum. One, of the, one of the down one of the downsides is that that you're losing part of the the park's facilities to to create this new thing and and yeah. that's why it does seem like it seems like calverton i the the thing that fascinates me about this is i've i'm a hockey fan i've been a hockey fan my whole life I never um, noticed that about you, John. Yeah, it's a very difficult thing to be a <laughs> lifelong Penguins fan who moved into Rangers and Islanders territory. But <laughs> nevertheless, I, I have seen, you know, it's it's interesting because the growth of hockey at the youth level and, and even the adult level um, in my lifetime is really remarkable. Um, where I come from back in Western Pennsylvania has become a real hotbed of create you know there's there's a lot of high schools my alma mater has a hockey team now that's actually produced some nhl players wow. um that uh, that 
did not exist when I was in high school a million years ago. But I've always been interested how um, a lot of folks on the East End are really into hockey. And it's just sort of organically, they're creating spaces. Buckskill is, is one that in East Hampton that, that people go, you know, flock to. But the, the newer one, you know, they started putting up the ice rink on the driving range in on uh, County Road 39, just outside outside Southampton, and it was really just meant to be for uh, fun skating in the winter, something for the for the um, driving range to do in the winter time. But it's become sort of a hub well, for hockey. Well, and, because all the, as as Denise mentioned, all the hockey players, all the youth hockey players. We're, we're driving hours up up the island to, to go to the facility and facilities up there and you know at odd hours because they were just packed 24 7 and you you couldn't get your you know you couldn't get on at, at regular hours and you know i think it's to, a to bring them local is a great great thing i really do and I, it, it reminds me of how soccer sort of blossomed a few years ago but it's a little more complicated because the facilities that you need for hockey are a little little more expensive and a little right. more Intensive. Well, I, you know, I, and that's what this Peconic Hockey Foundation is all about. I mean, they they always use the hashtag grow the game. Yeah. So, I mean, and, you know, growing interest in it. They do they do programs in schools. They do like, you know, floor hockey programs. They did them here at the uh, skate rink. And, and Red has a, a, a roller skating rink, an outdoor roller skating rink. And they've done lessons there. To your point, Joe, a few years back now, um, the rec department bought a um, some kind of a thing to turn the skating rink into an ice rink that they could put down and make ice. And, you know, in the in the winter, you know, the ice, I guess, makes itself in the, if it's cold enough. And when it was cold enough, um, that was really, you know, really well used. There were a lot of people there. Um, so, you know, and that's the other thing that they're saying, that this rink wouldn't be just for ice hockey. It would also be open for figure skating and things like that for the, with the public. So I don't think anybody disputes that this would be a, a, a great thing, <clears throat> not only I, for Riverhead, but the whole all of Eastern Suffolk. I mean, oh, I, I think know, it would be a regional. It's a question of no, it's but, a question of where. Yeah. And, you know, if Riverhead could just kind of get everything moving forward. <laughs> As some people like to say at, at FCAL, uh, they could develop that park. I mean, there's a lot of acreage sitting there waiting for, you know, if that could be like a real gem, as our rec superintendent, Ray Coyne, has said many, many times for, you know, it could be a real gem and a real sports hub for Eastern Suffolk County. And this could certainly be a great part of it. Whether it belongs and at Stotsky, I, you know, I'm not one to say, but um, there's a there's a significant amount of opposition to that. Apparently, this all-purpose field is used quite a bit um, by uh, soccer leagues in yeah. the town, and um, there's a that's part of the a, problem. There's a, there's a fenced and gated league uh, league uh, soccer field, but then there's this other field that there's you know takes the overflow, and you know the the, the people who use the, the the guy that runs the soccer league is objecting to this vehemently. I, a downtown I civic is objecting to it because of the traffic and everything that would you know. There's there's li very limited parking back there. This yeah. is the north end of Stotsky Park. It's got a gravel parking lot that you access by way of a dirt road. I kid you not. So it's you know. It's I, you, I, you don't I, want to punish. I, 
you don't want to punish the supporters of another sport um, right. to try and get this one off the ground. But the I would whole love, thing is just kind of a sticky wicket, as they say. I kind of want to <laughs> see this continue to, to continue to grow. And, and then the next step would be for local high schools to maybe field teams. I think that would be a really cool thing you know, to happen I, in the I next was, five, ten years. I was doing a little research about this particular bubble dome that they've purchased at um, from the city of Cranston. And I was looking at a local news website. I bought a one month subscription actually online <laughs> to yeah. um, the Cranston Herald. And um, I communicated with the editor there actually, but um, you know, it, it, it's full of hockey, hockey news. I mean, they have hockey leagues, the, the schools have hockey teams. They play each other. These hockey leagues, the youth leagues play. It's a very, very active sport. The paper is full of reports of it. It has this bu bubble dome was um, a, like a second or a, like an auxiliary. They have already like a, a, an actual NHL size rink um, in a permanent structure. This was a second rink and they were, and they were selling it because they're building a, a new modern better rink that mm. you know now the, their permanent main rink is going to become the secondary rink so it's really like a hub of activity and um like to your point joe that's what happens when you people can you know grow interest in the game and it happens like this organically um it can really take off so i, th I think the secret I is going to be for the for the five of us to come up with pickleball on ice Ooh. And then it'll bring all of the together and, and the, the demand will just be so great. We'll get it done. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm your co-host uh, along with Bill Sutton. We are with the Express News Group. Our panelists today are Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, Beth Young of the East End Beacon, and Chrissy Sampson from the East Hampton Star. Um, so, Beth, I wanted to talk about Southhold. Um okay. So there's a there's a pilot program up there right now um, that has to do with deer hunting. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's not here yet, um, but they had a big press conference announcing that it could be here um, next year. Um, last Friday, um, the state legislature is hopefully going to they're, they're hoping it'll take it up in January. Um, uh, state Assemblywoman Jody Giglio is uh, sponsoring this legislation that would basically uh, start a deer management pilot program in South Old Town, um, which would um, allow the town to kind of uh, do a lot of things in terms of deer hunting that aren't allowed under state law currently, um, just to see if it's effective at um, reducing deer population, which um, uh, you know, we all have. Are there, are there details on, on what kinds of measures they want to use? Are they talking about um, culls or are they talking there, about widening hunting or what's there, the... there are numerous measures that could be allowed under this and um, and they, they aren't gone into in, in depth in this legislation, but they do include um, uh, allowing hunting with crossbows, um, increasing the length of the sh shotgun season. Um, allowing younger um, hunters who are supervised to um, to participate, uh, they do include um, doing a cull, and a cull is basically you know you you hire professionals. In the past, they've done this in Southold with USDA sharpshooters, who and they're allowed to bait deer, which you aren't allowed under current hunting regulations. So you could have a baiting station, and the deer come to it, and you kill them there. Um, 
Now, the South Hold had participated in this back in 2014 when the Long Island Farm Bureau had gotten, a, I believe, a grant to do it. Um, and it was very controversial at the time. Um, a lot of the opposition came from the South Fork. I don't know if you all were uh, involved in coverage of all of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and Salvo was really the only municipality that really that really bought into this, and it wasn't tremendously effective. And um, there was there mm. were some reports of like people tampering with the baiting stations. Um, I know they were geographically a little bit limited. And one of the things they're talking about now with this thing is is sort of you know deer know when there are hunters around and they go somewhere else, which I think happened in Bambi. Um, <laughs> um, so, um, so, so, so all of this, I mean, it hasn't happened yet. Um, it would take, uh, state legislation to enable it to happen, but the state lawmakers and Southwood are working on this. Now the DEC has outlined a lot of these management tactics as things that they'd like to pursue in the future in their latest deer management plan, which came out last year. Um, but they don't have anything on the ground proving that it's effective and Southhold would really be like a, a lab to see if it's effective here, if it could be effective elsewhere. How, how bad is, is the over, overpopulation in, in Southhold right now? And what are the repercussions of, of that? I, I think there's always yeah. a lot of objections when, when you talk about the cullings, um, you know, and, and that type of thing, but, but, some argue that that when you do that, it helps protect the the population because then then there's you know there's there's more food for the existing population and and all that. And I'm not sure I buy into that myself, but right. uh, it's an it's an interesting argument. It's it's bad for the deer if there's too many deer, though, right? Right. I mean, it's it's very hard to count deer. Yeah, uh, I know there were issues in 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 East Hampton where they were trying to count deer at different times of the year, and um, depending on the methods used, you I mean you really can't get a, an accurate head count. But uh, the the uh, Southold has like almost three hundred deer strikes with car accidents per year. Wow, I believe okay. the other eastern towns are, are are probably you know some of them are bigger, so they have more more accidents um but it's a problem across the east end tick-borne illnesses are obviously a problem here and um and I'm damage to I'm vegetation yeah i'm intrigued chrissy i know that east hampton and north haven and some other places have have tried all different kinds of methods um from i, I believe sagaponic I, I think there were you know we've seen culls we've seen um, efforts. We've seen attempts to sort of address the Lyme disease issue uh, with the the stations uh, that North Haven had set up. Uh, we even, yeah, the the sterilization stuff was the fascinating thing to me, where they actually sent vets into the field to sterilize female deer. Um, I forget what the costs were, but um, very expensive. Uh, pretty yeah. remarkable. And they need step, boosters. Uh, yeah, I. I, I <laughs> This is an issue all over the East End, and and I'm curious, Beth. You talked about the the deer strikes and uh, with the vehicles, um, which I think is important. You know, we we may have a Lyme disease vaccine soon, um, and I'm going to be curious to see if we end up getting an effective Lyme disease vaccine. 
whether that will change the intensity of feeling about the deer population on the east end, whether it becomes a little bit less of a threat, even though the deer strikes with the vehicles and obviously the other tick-borne illnesses. There are yeah. other tick-borne illnesses beyond uh beyond Lyme disease. And, and when I talk to people these days who've had tick-borne diseases, a lot of them, they haven't been Lyme. They've been ehrlichiosis or alpha-gal or babesiosis. So, I mean, I don't have the figures in front of me as, in terms of how prevalent they are compared with Lyme disease, but a Lyme vaccine alone isn't going to cut it. One, one thing that um, Suffolk County legislator Al Krupski did mention he's a farmer in Ketchog and he said that a lot of times people will hit a deer. I hit a deer last year and it kept going and I kept going too. Yeah. The deer go into the farm fields and they suffer for days and then they die. And those, I mean, I didn't report my, you know, there was no damage to my car that I could see. So, so those are all unreported and the deer are still suffering. Um, just just a weird story it happened to me a, a couple of years ago. I was driving. It was I was at Mont, Montauk Highway in, in in Hampton Bays and and a deer came you know running into the road and I kind of swerved a little bit and he kind of swerved, you know, a little bit and kind of bounced off my car. There was no damage to the car or anything. And he ran off and or she I'm not sure um, the deer the deer ran off. I, and I'm I'm hoping you know that that uh, that the deer wasn't hurt too bad. I don't know where it, it ran off, but then I came home and and I parked, and the the and this this is apropos of nothing, but the the dogs just went crazy um, <laughs> smelling the car, and they could smell the the deer on the car, and then when I brought them inside. Lo and behold, there's there's a tick on on one of the dogs, and I'm I, I'm sure that it was just left on the car from from that deer. And the point of that, there's absolutely no point to that story at all. I just wanted to tell it. So there you go. You know, I can I can tell you, my brother in Pennsylvania was sitting in a red light, and a deer had gotten into a pizzeria and jumped oh, through gosh. the glass window of the pizzeria and ran into his car, uh, which was standing still um, and, and dented the side of his car. So he I think was I read about that in a headline. <laughs> I, I was walking down the street two blocks from my house last year and a deer almost hit me while I was walking. <laughs> Just I, was, I was in a pizzeria once. I, 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 <laughs> you know, I'm curious. The, it was the good thing pizza. with the Southwold thing is, I don't think you know all of the towns have sort of tried the hunting uh, and the culling, and and as you've said, I mean, I think there's been sort of limited impact, and I, I think it's interesting if if Southwold follows through with this, maybe it'll be a testing ground to say there is a way you can do this to bring down the, the deer population to a manageable level. Yeah. I mean, the, the big issue is that they currently have no natural predators. And right. I mean, you can look at other management tactics, but that's like the most ecologically similar to the way things would be without. Okay. Right, right here on behind the headlines, Beth Young has advocated releasing mountain lions in, <laughs> yeah. into, into the East end to help manage the deer population. I just want I to get you on record. I, Beth. Mountain <laughs> lions are, are our friends <laughs> I'm on the record. What about Link? <laughs> I'm, Link's I'm all for any big cats. Fair enough. Coyotes um, too. And big dogs. <laughs>
<laughs> so this is Behind Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, Beth Young of the East End Beacon, and Chrissy Sampson from the East Hampton Star. So Chrissy, um, there were some uh, events this week involving young lifeguards. You know, we started the summer with a story early on talking about the fact that uh, there was a real shortage of lifeguards. And also, I think it was actually uh, the towns were really struggling to fill uh, the folks working at the beach parking lots too. I think that was a big part of it. But lifeguards also, uh, there was a shortage in lifeguards. That may not be a problem in a couple of years, right? There's a real sort of resurgence of interest in lifeguarding. Yeah, and if the um, if the the competition this past weekend is any indication where like kids... There's something like 300 kids, nine to 15 years old, um, showed up for this tournament um, of lifeguarding skills, you know, a distance run, distance swim, paddle relays, uh, land rescues, different types of things like that, um, that the kids are learning in these junior lifeguarding programs. And, you know, it's not just competition. It's also an awareness. It's like this community has an awareness of this issue that about water safety and about protecting each other and, you know, and doing it in that spirit of community well-being, you know, and I just think that it bodes really well for the future. And it's hard to describe if I can, you know, put a thousand words to a picture and make an attempt to do this. I mean, like these kids, there's sand in their faces, the action, there's their beads of sweat, they're like reaching and running in the sand and the water. It's just such, such an intense scene. And it, it, I wasn't there, but I wish I was there. And, you know, I think Gavin was there, right? Your publisher. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I believe, I believe his daughter is involved in the program, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Ella is, is, is in the program. Um, I love every summer, one of my favorite things is the lifeguard um, competitions that take place uh, with the young men and women um, at Main Beach. And there's, there's usually a couple of them. And the photographs that come from those competitions are some of the most dramatic that we take in a year. And, I, and they're, they're just gorgeous photographs usually. And they, they really show the intensity uh, that these men and women have. And I think that's got to I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that by, by you guys and us and everybody sort of publishing those photos, the lifeguards have a little bit of, uh, I don't want to say mythical status, but I think they, they, I think the kids look up to them and, and, and it gives you a reason to want to be them. And I love that there is such an effort to get young people into the program by getting them started doing this stuff as early as, as possible. And, and yeah, the response has been terrific. Hasn't it? I mean, the, yeah. the, the turnout, what was the turnout for the one event? It was something like 300, I, there were 27 teams, yeah. um, you know, remarkable. several people to a team, if, if, if not more. Um, and, you know, there are consolation prizes, like a chip, witch. if you, if you lose at beach flags, you win a chip, witch. that's the consolation prize something like that i I mean mean, his first prize ribbons and medals and chip witches so now that's it you know i i I think it's a wonderful thing and and i think that that the towns are really gonna the the dividends will pay down the line in a couple of years 
Um, but the other thing is, it, you know, it's about keeping the beaches safe too. And, and you know, I mean, this some- that story a few weeks ago, um, you know, there was a Miles Manu who's a teenage, you know, junior lifeguard in one of the town programs. He made a save on an ocean beach. Yeah. You know? And, um, yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it, go ahead, Beth. Oh, and uh, Southampton Village Ocean Rescue is actually having a swim challenge event, not this weekend, next weekend, the 20th, okay. um, which is, um, yeah, uh, getting more people involved, um, trying to get uh, people to test their swimming ability against lifeguards there, which is really cool. Oh, so like an everyday so, person can enter that and test their mic yeah. against the, the lifeguard? I, that, that would be an alarming thing to me. <laughs> to try and to try and go up against the lifeguard in any regard, I don't know that I that yeah I would, I, I would just sing the I want to be a lifeguard song personally. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I was just so so we um, in addition to that competition, we we ran a story in sports section, uh, you know, about the the Southampton Town Junior Lifeguards, and I just I thought that you know you were talking about just teaching them. Um, you know, safety, appreciation for for the ocean, and and a love for that, and and we had one quote quote in there from um, um, you know from one of the people who who helps train these junior lifeguards, and she talks about um, you know one of the girls who showed up on her first day and was just adamant that she didn't want to go in the ocean. She had no desire to go in the ocean. I'm not sure why she signed up for the program in the first place, but but there she was. She didn't want to go to the, in the ocean. And she said, by the time the program was was finished, she was just uh, on a daily basis, just the last one out of the ocean. So she she found that that passion and grew to love the ocean and grew to feel comfortable and safe in in the ocean. And and I think that's you know a really important element of this. Yeah, Chrissy, you know we, we talk about it'll be new new lifeguards to to help provide safety for other people, missing entirely the point that all of the kids who are learning to become lifeguards. Are going to be much more comfortable in the water yeah. um, themselves, and, and you know this in 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 the pandemic, this kind of went away. But the YMCA here in East Hampton, the schools used to bring before the pandemic. The schools used to bring kids to the YMCA for swimming lessons, like as part of their school day. And you know that kind of went by the wayside. I don't know what the status is currently, but like this is you know, perhaps picking up where that left off Sure. in terms of like, you know, getting kids that waterproofing, they, they talk about waterproofing kids, right. Um, to up their safety and awareness in the water. And like, I don't know where this generation falls into that gap, but you know, here they are, they're, you know, they're, they're the future on the beaches, you know? Yeah. On South Fork, I, you got to tip your hat to, all the municipalities, so I think, are really doing a terrific job of of paying attention to that and putting yeah. resources behind it and getting interest. Uh, well, among and, and, and the effort to build the the indoor pool in in Southampton, which has been ongoing for a few years, um, you know, as as they continue to raise funds. But the organizer of that was it Joanne Devenzenzi. Joe is mm-hmm. Joanne. Josephine. Josephine, Joe. I'm sorry, Joe. Yeah. So, so she was a, a she's a retired teacher, and um, as a teacher, horrible story. She she watched two of her students drown, 
and because they were just unfamiliar with 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 the water and so that's her motivation to build this indoor pool is so other people don't have to go through that that grief that 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 kids I mean, we live on an island, but a lot of kids just don't know how to uh, swim or, or, or behave or act in, in the water. And, you know, and, and that's just super important. It has tragic consequences if if they don't. Yeah, absolutely. We're gaining on it a little bit at a time, yeah. I think. I think it's because of uh, the efforts of the towns and, and Southampton Village and other folks to get these programs going. You know, kind of a related conversation. We had a story this week. Um, about a dispute in East Hampton Village uh, involving uh, the paid EMTs there. And it's complicated, and, and I don't want to get too bogged down in the story that we have, which had to do with a member of the department there who had complained a bit about the paid EMTs. Uh, and in the way that he complained to other members uh, was deemed harassment, and he ended up getting suspended from the department, um, which is a little bit of a, it's raised some hack wheels. But I want to focus on the idea that the point he was making is an interesting one, which is these are departments, these volunteer ambulance departments are really um, predicated on the idea that you have volunteers who are very committed and you bring in paid EMTs and it changes the nature of, of what those departments are doing. Beth, you're you're a, a, a rescue. What are you an EMT? Yeah, a, a, you are an EMTB, EMT, right? a basic EMT. Yes. Okay. Uh, um, I mean, talk about the dynamic here. Yeah, paid EMTs are are meant to supplement what the volunteer department does, but they can have an impact on the morale of the volunteer department, right? Yeah, they absolutely can. Uh, we don't have paid EMTs in Kachog, but our neighboring district, Matatuck, um, has just. Um, just hired, and basically they have one person on staff, um, I believe, uh, to cover the daytime shifts. I'm not exactly sure what their shift schedule is. But I mean, this is the case throughout the East End. A lot of places that they have one person on staff. Um, there's also uh, Stony Brook and I think Northwell also run these uh, cars that have paramedics in them that those paramedics will ride with EMTs if there's a critical call. Um, so we work really well with the uh, Stony Brook and the Northwell staff. These people are really, really professionals. But when you have somebody who is in-house, who's paid by your department, it's kind of a little bit of a different dynamic because, you know, as especially during the pandemic, you know, all these volunteers are getting up in the middle of the night. Um, they're, it's exhaustion level work. On the South Fork, I know you've got like tremendous travel times to get to the hospital from a lot of these districts. Um, and, and people are doing it um, because they're retired or they have the time or they feel committed or whatever their reason for doing it is, it's not a monetary reason. So when you bring in people who um, are paid, it's going to create a little bit of conflict, some places more so than others. Um, it really helps to be able to have a healthy dialogue about what it is. Um, if you have one paid person there, you just know you're going to be able to cover a call, and but you always need more than one person. Um, you yeah, be Denise, a Denise and Chrissy, has this been a conversation that you've heard as well? Um, about the impacts on morale and things like yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, do you, do you, hear, do you hear that um, being an issue oh, with some of the departments? That... I mean, I, I, Riverhead has relied on paid EMTs for years and years now. Um, they, they they say that, you know, the president of the Ambulance Corps just told me last fall um, that, you know, they he was saying they don't have the budget to pay the 
uh, the paid staff competitive wages and they lose them um, to other other uh, locales because this is a very common thing up the island that when they have volunteer corps, they rely on on paid uh, personnel as well. Uh, Riverhead Volunteer Ambulance Corps um, has over 4,000, maybe 4,000 calls a year, more than 4,000 calls a year, they answer. Um, They have to have an ambulance staffed every day from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. with at least three people um, or they can't cover their calls. And so because volunteers have jobs that, you know, take them elsewhere. A lot of the volunteers in Riverhead actually are paid EMTs in other districts too. Uh, but, yeah. you know, they, um, you know, they, they need to rely on them. There's no way around it. And yeah. in fact, um, years back, a paid responder uh, that worked for Riverhead, um, at, we actually lost a paid responder in the line of duty when uh, a volunteer was also killed in an ambulance crash that was mm. responding so I mean I don't I, I mean it's it's certainly possible that I'm just not aware of these internal things like the way you are Beth but I really have not heard anything like that and I, I, I can't remember hearing anything like that ever but to um, it myself either yeah I mean I think yeah. I think the attitude at least where I am is that we need the help yeah and, that's and the, the the basic goal is so, to you know people so, when people call 911 they should know that somebody's going to show up so, yeah, so no, devil, really devil, devil's, advo- devil's advocate, Beth, and I would never question, I mean, the motivation of, of, of volunteers. They're certainly doing more than I'm doing, and I'm sure everybody's committed. But do, do you think if there's if there's a paid EMT working and, and, and you get that call out at three in the morning that that a volunteer would be would would be less likely to to respond because they know the paid emt is going to yeah. go i think that, that might be the fear right that is definitely a concern yeah i mean I, also to your point needs- bill i'm sorry i just said in the pandemic they really the reliance on the paid staff really increased because yeah. a lot of volunteers um, just we're not willing to come out and, and yeah, uh, I mean, ride there are some times yeah. where, you know, I might have been willing to come out, but a member of my household might have had to go in for surgery the next week. And I don't mm-hmm. want to risk them. Sure. Right. They yeah, might have positive COVID and not be able to have surgery. Then, you know, so, I think the flare up like in that. East Hampton, the flare up in East Hampton Village, I think, shows something that that is happening at probably all of the departments all over the East End. We are out of time. Actually, I'm going to wrap it up quickly here and thank Denise Civiletti, Beth Young, and Chrissy Sampson. Thank you for being with us this week. Great to see you. Thank you, as always, to Bill Sutton, my co-host. I'm Joe Shaw. Uh, This was Behind the Headlines. We'll see you next week. Thanks, guys.